You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Defense mode. We're survivors. Like, help with them. In our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Julie Larson. Julie is a licensed clinical social worker who has spent her career working in oncology supportive care. Julie has a vibrant private practice working primarily with young adults facing an unexpected medical diagnosis. Julie presents often around the country to both survivor and professional audiences on the impact of a serious illness at a young age and living fully after a cancer diagnosis. Julie's clinical work has led her to be a trusted advisor to many advocate organizations on strategies to improve and grow their young adult programming, and she has been featured in various publications, including Coping Magazine, Cure, Self Magazine, Crazy Sexy Cancer Survival Guide, and many wellness and survivor blogs. Thanks so much for joining us today, Julie. Oh, I am happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to our conversation today. Today's episode, we're talking about the anxiety and uncertainty of a cancer diagnosis. So for many young adults who are at that stage of either actively finding themselves or having a plan for their lives, what is or how would you define fear for those diagnosed with an acute medical diagnosis? Absolutely. Well, the minute the word cancer is mentioned in a doctor's office, the minute you understand that that is the diagnosis that we're looking at and the doctors and the medical team begin to work with you to figure out a treatment plan, there is just a complexity of emotions and thoughts that enter the room, right? There's all of the understanding and grappling with what does this mean medically and what are my treatment options and how do I understand my unique diagnosis? But then underneath all of that are all of those emotions and the feelings and the thoughts that fuel those emotions that are also swirling in part of the picture. And one of those certainly, Alicia, you mentioned is fear. And fear is many things. Fear can be as big and looming as mortality and death. And that word certainly is a piece of the puzzle when we talk about cancer. And fear can also mean, what about my social circle? And how am I going to stay connected to my friends? And what about my career track and and continuing to build who I am as a professional and stay connected and engaged in my work life so that I get promoted and I keep moving forward in those ways that feel meaningful to me? 
And wait, also, I live with roommates or I live in a home where I don't know what my support is at home. I don't live with my parents and my family or I'm not married with the stability of that structure. So for young adults, and certainly I work with people of all ages, but since you asked about young adults, I think that fear can mean many, many things. And that goes for any age group. But there's there's so much to be said about what the unknowns and the uncertainty that a cancer diagnosis brings. Right, and you brought up a great point when you said, you know, young adults with cancer may depend on others for care and, or, you know, they, they don't have the finances or they may be concerned about their finances at that time because you are starting out your life. And I know that when we uh, sat with a young adult ALL survivor, he told us that when he was diagnosed, he had no idea where to look. He was completely lost. In your mind, you're thinking you have all these organizations. Of course, there's all these publications. But when you get those words, you freeze and you don't you don't know what to do yeah. or what to even type in the search engine. I mean, this is something you've never had to deal with before. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's an incumbent upon often the supportive team because they have to do a lot of not only the medical end of things, but also helping to introduce survivors to what options are available to them for resources and information. And financial toxicity, that's how we refer to the stress of finances and cancer. It's the real deal for often young patients. You don't have the assets, that the resources built up over a lifetime. You might just be starting in. You might have a, a job that income is by the hour or wages. So when you're not there, you're making zero. So uh, that the ability to find financial resources or be able to think about how you're structuring your finances is certainly a big piece of the puzzle and adds a different level of stress for many survivors. You know, in my office, and I know we're talking a lot about, you know, what it's like when you're first diagnosed and what comes into the, the picture. And organizations like Leukemia Lymphoma Society and others do a wonderful job of helping survivors understand these are normal feelings to be having. These are normal if you are experiencing stress, if you're experiencing fear, if you're experiencing sadness, confusion, all of these things, you are, this is, this is normal. That is not a surprise. This makes sense. It's understandable. So I hope that many survivors, when they begin to feel these feelings, aren't feeling alone in that, are worried that they're doing something quote unquote wrong, or they're doing cancer poorly, right? Because gosh, that's a stressor. But what I watch when people walk into my office is that just because you know that uncertainty and worry and sadness are normal, you have to also know what you do with it. So how you care for yourself uniquely in those feelings. And I believe the medical team is working very hard to help patients understand the uniqueness of their medical diagnosis, the uniqueness of their physical response to cancer. And it is incumbent upon survivors and support of others to help survivors understand, okay, what does sadness look like for you? What does worry look like for you? And what do you uniquely do with those feelings to care for yourself? And that is a very personal question because what you do with your worry may look very different than the, uh, the survivor that sits next to you in a support group. It might look very different than your mother and her worry or your sibling and their worry. So we all have to come to understand how those emotions bubble up within us, what they look like, how do we identify them, and then what in the heck do we do with it when we feel that feeling? Sure. And a lot of people just feel like they they lose that sense of control. You know, you plan for your life. I'm a planner. 
So I like to plan for months, years on end. Mm -hmm. And when you hear the word cancer, I think right away, I know I, I would feel, how can I plan now? That sense of control is kind of gone. Mm-hmm. And, and gosh, I'm so glad that you said the word control. And I hear that so often in my office. I, I don't feel like I have any control. And in some ways, there are many, many things you have to release control. There are some places where we have to let that go. But then where do you have control? What, Where can you grab on? And sometimes that is related to right now. And when you said I like to plan things, we just immediately associated control with future, right? Like I like to plan into the future. And oh, so do I. I love my calendar and my list (laughs) and get myself all organized with my goals. But you know what? Sometimes when we're in certain periods of our life, we've got to shrink that window of focus down and really get tight on, I'm just focusing on today. I'm focusing on this time. There are times in my office when I say to people, all you're going to do is wake up and get to lunch. That's it. I just want you to wake up and get to lunch. And then once you get to lunch, get to dinner. And then once you get to dinner, get to bedtime. And that's it. Because that is the only energy that you have is to stay in this now, stay in your present. And in that now, you you have some control. That's true. I have this beautiful quote. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm probably going to quote it. Oh, I love quotes. (laughs) Oh, I do too. And I love it when I, you know, whenever I speak to people or I grab all the books off of my bookshelf and I look for inspiration and some things to ground me. And I was preparing for something once and I found this one and I'm like, oh, what what a beautiful one. And it comes from the book by Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way. So I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but The quote was something to the effect of, when the past is too difficult to remember, when the past is too difficult to remember, when the future is too scary to contemplate, the only safe space is right now. That in this exact moment, I am okay. And if you think about that, so I love that in this exact moment, I am safe. I am okay. And that really our lives are strung together by a lot of exact moments right now. So even when we are going through a hard time in this one moment right now, I am okay. How could I stay in this one moment? So when we think about control and uncertainty, how do you shrink that frame of focus right down to the grounded moment of now? And, and look around you, use your five senses and be aware of who you're sitting with, what you hear, what you see, what's around you right now. And that can feel safe and helpful. That's such great advice because I know being a young adult, and Lizette gets on me all the time, but being a young Because I'm not a young adult anymore. <laughs> being, <laughs> being a young adult, I know that I think about what other young adults, you know, either my friends or those that I do know who have a, who have an illness. And when, when they talk and we, we have this conversation, of course, social media comes up, right? Because that's something that's very, very prevalent within this generation. Oh yeah. And we think about Instagram, we think about Facebook, we think about all, all the different streams that are out there and how it plays into the role of support for a young adult. Because I know that there's those who use it as, you know, a place for them to seek help from others or just seek support or 
find their find those who are like themselves who they can actually say okay this person relates to me and then there's those who yeah. get off of it completely because it's FOMO right it's, it's the fear of missing out yeah yep well you're touching on kind of uh, um an example that it that highlights what I, I talk to in my i talk about in my office too about the pendulum you know anything in life kind of exists in this pendulum of incredibly helpful and supportive to me and then debilitating and sometimes stressful to me too so the same exact thing can be both healthy and not healthy and that goes for social media certainly and and when you talk about young adults so this time frame of life development where young adults are, you 100% are normal and appropriately comparing yourself to others. That's just part of the developmental task of young adulthood. Where do I stand? Who am I? Like, am I getting married? Am I having children? Where am I in my job? All of your sense of identity in some way is reconciling where you fall uniquely and independently relative to your peers. Right. As you get older, that matters a little less and less. You kind of understand who you are. You understand what your path is. And there's nothing right, wrong, good, or bad about that. It just is what it is. And you're surrounded by your peers, and you're and you're kind of comparing who am I and why, what industry did I decide to go into, and what does that say about my character and who I am, and what are the values and priorities that drive me. So that's normal for young adulthood. And then we inset a cancer diagnosis, which immediately yanks you out of that. And now you're like, okay, I am on this wheel, this spin of figuring out who I am as a person and in this life. And now I have just gotten this huge interruption that has taken me out of that. So talk about FOMO. I mean, you're completely isolated and pulled out of those experiences. And so I think for a lot of young adults, it's finding ways to integrate back in, how they can stay connected and stay engaged. And social media provides one of those options, right? It allows you to stay engaged with others. It allows you to stay informed and feel like you're connected. There are many, many social media platforms out there and, and more and more for survivors, uniquely for survivors, where you can find community and find others so that you don't feel like you're going through a cancer experience by yourself. And, and I think in those ways, it provides the ability to stay connected and stay supported and stay informed. But like all things, that whole pendulum can swing and then it begins to feel stressful, right? And you just mentioned too, that feeling of fear of missing out and, and what everybody else is doing and I'm not measuring up. So that's where, you know, we, that's where when we talk about mindfulness and being able to increasingly become more self-aware of when has this turned into something that is giving me warm, fuzzy feelings of being okay and feeling like what I'm feeling makes sense and is understandable to shift. This is now making me feel restless and it's making me feel irritable and it's making me feel very alone. How do you as a patient, as a survivor, as a young adult, become increasingly self-aware of that for yourself? And I can't write a recipe for that. I can't give you a handout or talk about it, but I do work in my office with people to learn what that's like. Like, do you feel that restlessness or that stress physically? Do you feel like a, you know, a knot in your stomach? Do you begin to get headaches? Do you feel fatigued? How does stress manifest itself for you? Because stress will show up in different ways. Some people truly feel stress in a very physical way. So you begin to notice, you know what? I can't sleep at night. 
and I, my stomach is spinning and I, I feel that, oh my gosh, my shoulders are all clamped up. Something, so this isn't working for me anymore. I'm feeling the stress of this. Some people are real thinkers. Their heads begin to spin and they're thinking about all the things that other people are doing, conjuring up movies in their mind about the grand time everyone else is having and they're not in it. So their head starts getting on overdrive, right? And then we have other people that can be very emotional and they're sad and they're teary and they're in they're are they're feisty and angry. So, you know, where, so how does that self-awareness work for you and what does it teach you about what's healthy or not healthy for your support? I think it's very important to become self-aware and it's true. It really helps to have somebody to be able to tell you that certain things are okay to feel. And I think I was, I actually thought I was the only one that my stomach goes in knots when I'm like anxious. So it's mm -hmm. nice to say, it's nice for you to say <laughs> that, you know, it's something that people could, could feel. Oh but if, yeah. But if somebody isn't able to go into an office and actually talk with somebody that can actually help them through the process, is there a way that, you know, you could just sit down and kind of frame this for yourself so you can you know, get through this a little bit easier? Yeah. You know, I, yes. One thing that I say in my office all the time is you're sitting in front of me. You've made it this far. How'd you do it? And I think the reason I say that is that there are inherently positive or positive is a loaded word, but there are coping skills at work in us all. You've made it here somehow. How in the heck are you sitting in front of me today? What got you here? How have we done this so far? Or people call me, you know, people don't call me when they're first diagnosed. They often don't even call me when they immediately finish. The most, most calls I get from people are three, six, eight months out. And they wake up and they're like, I am not okay. And I thought I should be by now. And what's going on? Because it all hits, right? Right. But yeah, but I, but I think that that gives me the opportunity to say, well, then how'd you get it? How'd you get here? How did, how did you survive six months? What have you been doing? And often people have kind of pushed off calling a therapist for a while <laughs> before they eventually do. So what, so what have you always done? In moments that are stressful, whether that was in high school or in college or through another difficult time in your life, you know, how do we reflect back and think, you know, what I did is I started a hobby or I started, I recognize that turning on music in my house always changes my perspective and changes my mood. I recognize that whenever I call this person, they do respond and answer and, and listen to me exactly the way I need. Now, when I call this person, not so much, <laughs> but when I call this person, you have to be honest with that, yourself. Right. But that's also yeah. self-awareness, right? That you're like, oh, okay. This person does it for me. This person actually gets me more riled up, right. you know, so how do you know, but you know, so there are probably ways that you've coped that have worked for you in the past. What have we done? So kind of maybe just even taking a moment and looking back to that and saying, how did I make it through that night when I thought I would never fall asleep? What'd you do? That's such a great point. Cause you know what? I think that sometimes we forget, we forget that this emotion. And again, a cancer diagnosis is something that when it happens, of course, it's nothing related to anything else. But nope. like you said, the emotions that attach, that are attached to it are things that you very well have, have experienced before. You know, when it came to there you go. fear of or anxious of or scared of. I mean, those emotions that we, we did 
experience them in some capacity. And I think it's a really great point to say, this has happened before. You've lived yep. you know, X amount of years and you must have experienced that at some point. What did you do? It really, it really puts the power, like Lizette was saying, the fear of losing control by doing that. It really gives you back that control to say, here's what I did then and here's what I can do now. Yep. I, yes, I agree. And, and uh, you know what you just said, the word cancer and the experience, the emotional intensity of facing what that might mean for you is likely different than anything else, right? But some of the emotion that you've had, you have faced in lower doses at other times. So how do you honor that and have confidence, have that fuel your confidence that you can do this moment? And you're not alone. You might be alone, the only one walking the path. I like to draw the analogy of a tightrope. Is it high wire, tightrope walker? There's only one person that can go on that, that high wire, right? There's only one person that can walk that, walk that one single tiny foot in front of the other. But you're holding that giant like stick thing with the balls at the end, right? And those and those are, you know, maybe your your most supportive people that are up there with you helping to balance. There's maybe somebody on the platform on the other end that's maintaining eye contact with you and pulling you like across. There's a whole net underneath you. And there's the people that maybe are standing on the platform behind you cheering you on and encouraging you. So yes, you are the only person. They can walk that wire, but there's a whole group of people that are there to support and surround you in that process. They all have a different role. That's a great analogy. Also, if you think about it, you can't run. You can't run across the wire. You can't skip. You can't run. You can't do anything fancy. You've got to go slow and steady, and you can only do one step at a time. You can only do today, and we only really know today. It's okay to allow yourself to experience those emotions because I think about the people who we've spoken to who have said I hate the term battling cancer I hate the term and I and I think about that as you're saying these things and I'm saying I I feel like I can understand that more now because with the, when you say you're battling cancer it's with the assumption that you're giving all you got you can't get weak you have to do that you know you have to beat this thing you have to face it head-on and the reality is that you will have moments where you can't, where you don't feel like it, when you need the support of others. As you were saying that, I, I thought of that terminology and I was saying, I, I understand that it's something that kind of gives off the illusion that you have to always be ready and you're not. You're not ready or sometimes you won't be, you know, I mean. Well, how can you be ready? Yeah. You don't know what to expect, really. Yeah. And I would like to also say that in some ways to say that you've always got to be ready or that we're battling it implies that those other emotions are not okay, are perhaps dangerous, or they might get in your way. And as a therapist, I feel strongly that there are no good or bad feelings. There are no right or wrong feelings. There are feelings. Feelings are feelings. And in fact, all of our feelings serve a purpose. So if we're stuffing some, if we're ignoring some and we're avoiding them, we might be missing important messages or important things that we need to know. That when you lay down in your bed and sob, your tears symbolize something that matters a great deal to you. And gosh, that's important to pay attention to. So if we're constantly fighting off that moment, then we, don't, then we miss something 
And it's okay to allow for all those feelings because they make sense and they're understandable. Each and every one. The anger, you know, I think anger gets a bad rap. Anger motivates us. Anger makes us stand up. Anger is when something is being threatened and we are not not going to let go. Mm -hmm. And we're going to fight for it. And we want it. And don't you dare take that away from me. So anger makes you stand up too. It makes you... You know, I would venture to say that most nonprofit organizations have probably been founded with somebody with anger <laughs> who said, there is not something out there for me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to create it. Right. Uh, when I went through this experience, I didn't find this and that was not good. And so I'm going to build it. So, you know, there's a lot of good that sometimes begins from somebody standing up and saying, I got to make a change here. I, gotta do this. I, I want this. This has got to be different. So anger serves a purpose. Sadness serves a purpose. Sadness teaches us what's important to us. I, you know, when I work with people who are at end of life, and certainly you have sadness at any point in the spectrum of trajectory of cancer survivorship, but when I have worked with people at end of life, when we talk about death and dying, dying is often not what makes people feel sad or, or huge emotion. What makes people feel huge emotion is missing or leaving their life, Right not having their life. And if we think about that sense of mortality, it's often about what will you leave or what will you miss? And boom, right there, we have razor sharp focused on what matters a great deal to you. So if we hadn't had that conversation and gotten there, then it wouldn't have highlighted and illuminated, oh my goodness, this is what matters to you. Your children, you want to be with your family. Oh my gosh, it matters to you to, to do these, these activities, to do these things. So immediately we know where you want to be, where you focus your now, your present. When I think about the perspective of a cancer patient, the loss of a loved one, you know, what, and, I, and I would believe, I would go so far as to say that's one of the most poignant fears that patients encounter. Would you say that, you know, facing the loss of relationships mm -hmm. with loved ones? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For both survivors and for caregivers. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet at the same time, when you talk about that, then it strengthens and it pulls together that time to get that time that you have with one another, you know, how meaningful it is, how much you care, you know, how much you you are influenced and inspired and impacted by one another. You share, allow that feeling to open you up. That's so true. Because for some people, that, that's the opportunity to acknowledge the grief, to complete unfinished business, those people in their lives, spend time with the loved ones, and really recognize the limited time and, and live in that moment and really cherish that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that moment turns from beginning with a, with a sense of sadness and fear and anxiety, you know, worry about that to this profound connection and care and love that's all within there too. It's all wrapped together. We were speaking with a social worker and on one of our videos she said that she was talking to her support group and she said to them, so you're scared that it might return, your, your cancer might come back. And the fear of the unknown, basically you don't know what's gonna happen but start thinking about it. If the cancer comes back, then what would you do? And started framing it where patients and caregivers said, well, we would ask the doctor, you know, what's our next steps? And the doctor would probably have a plan for us. And realizing that if they actually thought about the plan and what would actually happen, 
that it wasn't as scary. Yeah. That makes me think of, when you, Lizette, when you're talking about that. So a lot of times when I begin with my clients, I start my work in a very cognitive behavioral framework. So cognitive behavioral is kind of addressing the thoughts that are in our head that are spinning, that are making us feel fear and anxiety and worry. And and if there is a level of kind of inaccuracy or in those that those thoughts and that's going to influence how we feel, right? So that's that, that some of that work is about challenging fears, right? Finding evidence to the contrary, all of these things that we talk a lot about with fear of recurrence, you know, your latest scans, your how you're physically feeling Feeling. Okay, so I'm I'm working right along in this way with a patient, and actually I was working with a spouse. His wife had had breast cancer, and he comes back to me another session, and he looks me straight in the eyes, like you know, so Julie, this is not working for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and he's kind of tongue in cheek, but he's saying to me, it was it was brutally honest, and I kind of love that. He's like, this is not working for me. And I was like, okay, so what'd you do? So what what are you doing with those feelings? He's like, I just took it all the way to the worst case scenario. Exactly what you're just saying. I took it all the way to my fear. If the cancer came back and then began to figure out, okay, now if I'm going to go ahead and just live in that fear, just like to jump feet first in, now what does it look like? Now what is the perspective? Now what is the landscape? And I found exactly what you're saying, Lizette. I found that there, I wasn't alone there and there were still options and it wasn't like a cliff. It was just that I had to open a different door and that showed me that there were so many different things available to me there. That if we fight, if we're constantly in the fight, pushing off and resisting the worry, that sometimes that's harder. So in addition to working with my patients in cognitive behavioral ways, I also work with them around acceptance. And what does accepting some of those things do? How does that benefit us? And we hate that word acceptance when it's not something that we wanted or planned for or saw for ourselves, but this is what it is. And perhaps by fighting it constantly, we are caught and we're making more emotional work for ourselves. What if we just accept this? And then what windows are doors open? What do you discover? What is there available to you? What feels lighter? What suddenly feels easier? And that can go for facing the uncertainty of down the road, you know, like a fear of recurrence or fear of something in back. It can also go with, you know, I'm a survivor and now I've got to deal with neuropathy day in and day out. Or you know what? I don't love this scar or my body doesn't have the same energy level that it ever did. And I can fight that and constantly feel disgruntled. And there are days when you will and days when you don't. But sometimes, you know, what is it like to say, this is my new now or this is my now. This is what is true for today. And if I say that, if I accept it, if I let that in, then maybe can I begin to look at this in a different way? When you speak about grief and its role within cancer and a cancer diagnosis, many think that because of the conversation that we're having here today or because of the context that we've placed it in, that it relates to someone passing away, someone losing a loved one. Now, of course, those are reasons to grief, but grief is really anything that you find valuable that you lost or you may lose. So yes, you can grieve over a person. Of course, that's something that one would respond to and react to. However, you can grieve over anything, any entity that simply exists and has the potential to be removed from one's life. Absolutely. 
I watch in my office when I say the word grief, it almost feels like a light has gone off. Our, our um, shoulders, you know, go down. Mm-hmm. You know, the people are like, yeah, it's a, it resonates. It clicks because they are mourning the loss of either something that they used to do or even something as abstract as a sense of being carefree, a sense of being naive. Everyone else is so carefree and nonchalant and blah, blah, blah. And I don't have an ounce of that anymore. Everything I think, I think doubly hard about every single decision. I measure my actions. I have to be mindful about all these different things. There's nothing that I flippantly and spontaneously do when I grieve that. I mourn that. And so it could be something very tangible or it could be something very abstract. And grief has phases of grief. And yes, you kind of popcorn through all the different phases of grief, but they all serve a purpose and they all are important to feel. And yet I watch in my office, I tell people that they can be stuck in the dab, (laughs) stuck in the dab. Oh, I'm wondering if perhaps maybe you might be stuck in the dab. And they're looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Julie. (laughs) And what I'm talking about is that when the stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and acceptance. And people get stuck in the dab, stuck in denial. This is not happening. I am quite sure that in a couple months it will all be fine. Or once I start eating a salad every single day, I'll feel different. Or if I start drinking more water, or if I start exercising, then then surely will change. My weight will go down. Or denial, or you know, anger. I'm pissed. I'm angry that this has happened. Why me? Why is why was the person that did all of these things? I did nothing wrong. Why me? That anger piece, bargaining. If I again, if I do these things, this will change. Oh, see all the fight in there, the restlessness, the fighting, and they're constantly figuring it out and stuck in that dab. And what people have the hardest point, I think what is a really difficult place to get is the sadness because sadness is vulnerable. Oh, sadness is so vulnerable. And sadness demands that we feel safe. You are not going to feel truly sad and allow for the sense of vulnerability that comes with sadness and grief unless you feel safe. And that too is a very personal, it's a very personal thing. Some people need to be surrounded by the people that love them and care for them and can hold them and can be right there for them. And others need to be alone. So many people cry to sleep at night or they need to be private. I've had people actually ask me, do you think it's a problem I'm not crying in therapy? And I don't think it's a problem at all. I think that sometimes people talk things through with me and then they need to have the privacy to feel very sad. So so I think everyone, again, back to that self-awareness, how do you begin to understand and recognize what you need to feel safe enough to feel sad? And then through that sadness comes a degree of acceptance and acceptance isn't a, you know, rainbows and unicorns moment where they're like, suddenly the sun rises and we're all happy now that we are accepting. No, no. Acceptance doesn't necessarily feel good. Acceptance is what it is that somehow the fight is gone and you're like, this is where I am. And now I will begin to take stock and take inventory and come to understand it and see where that is for me. So that's acceptance and acceptance can open a door and it can change things. I, I think about for myself and, you know, not that my experiences are anything different, but I, I, I recognize a moment of acceptance in my own life and how that changed. And I recently moved out of New York city. My goodness. I loved New York city. Oh, 
It's my favorite place in the whole world. <laughs> I love it, love it, love it. I left kicking and screaming. I could have stayed there forever. I love New York City. And so when you think about how much I loved New York City, you'll understand my grief reaction when we moved to Iowa. 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 Right? (laughs) And there is a lot. Let me just go ahead and quickly say there's a lot to love about Iowa, but it is very different than New York City, right? So it's a very different culture. It's a very different pace. It's a lot different. In the first Six months to a year that I lived in Iowa, I was fighting it. I was looking for every doggone <laughs> way back to New York City. I was like, this is not, not going to work for me. And I was working it and, like, and fighting, fighting, fighting. I was not accepting that that's where I was. But as soon as I did and I stopped and I slowed down and I was sad and I cried and I let it go. And I said, this is where I'm living right now. Then I started to meet amazing friends and then I started to dig in and make my home beautiful in the way that I would want my home to be. I started to get involved with my community and feel like I could could give back and to do what I wanted to do there. And I could start to create my rich and equally fulfilling, wonderful life in Iowa. So it wasn't until I stopped fighting that I could open up and begin to see where I was. And I, I recognize that I'm talking about New York City and Iowa. <laughs> and I'm not talking about, you know, a cancer diagnosis. But if you can translate that to this place of we can fight where we're at because we're not, it's not where we expected. It's not what we would want. But maybe if we accept it and we open up, then maybe the terrain and the landscape begins to look a little different. Maybe you begin to find how you can be yourself, discover what hasn't changed, what hasn't been lost, and how you integrate and weave that right back into today. That's such great information. And I know that for, for me, for my family, when my grandmother passed away from cancer, my mom, we all grieved in our different ways. And like, we were, like you were saying earlier, each person's experience of grief is unique. And then coping with that is, you know, is also different for each person. And so when I would kind of observe my mom and see how, you know, check in and see how she was doing, what I found is that she, she went through all the stages that we discussed, but the thing that I think she found the most comfort in was speaking to other people who had lost someone. But, I mean, of course, if it was someone who lost a parent, mm-hmm. she would relate to them more, but she definitely was seeking those conversations because that was where she was able to gather information and strength and a level of understanding from as well. So here mm-hmm. at LLS, we have yeah. the LLS community, which is the online social platform where people go in and they talk to other people who may be experiencing the same diagnosis. And I think that's such a major component for so many people. This is the first time I'm experiencing this. And so because I don't know, someone else has, and let's link up. Oh yeah, yes. Because to feel understood is so vital to our to our life. You know, within all of our relationships, you know, we that is the that is the cornerstone of most relationships. If you're not feeling understood within a relationship, that relationship is is trickier to be in. You know, so when you are going through a cancer experience, to sit with somebody else where you can just nod in agreement and you understand each other on a deeper level, it's so profound. We get that feedback from all of our you know, patients and caregivers who um, get onto like our online chats and, and all of our different platforms that it's different when they're you know, connecting to somebody else that they feel has gone through it than 
possibly listening to a, a physician or a healthcare professional talk about the disease, mm-hmm. that it's much different and they connect with someone that they feel has been where they are now. Yeah. I think there's um, a unique value in all these different types of support that that survivors, well, in each person, you know, might need a different thing, but you probably need a recipe. So I need 80% survivorships where I need like about 10% of this and I need about 5% of that. You know, what is your unique blend of what type of support you have? But really those you know, healthcare professionals. So that's like oncologists, nurses, therapists like me. These folks have had the opportunity of working with hundreds, if not thousands of survivors. So they can help you to know, oh, what you're feeling, we've seen this before. What, you know, this is, I have so much experience in working with this population and I understand that I can lead you to information and give you those, those resources. Those that have been there are walking in the same shoes. So they are living it day in and day out. They're living it in the dark of the night when nobody else is awake, just like you. And so they understand what that feels like and what you're thinking and and how it is to talk to other people who do or don't understand. They're in that. And then, you know, friends and family. Sometimes we we minimize that. So we don't minimize it, but we don't see it in the same way as cancer-related support. And yet friends and family have known us your whole doggone life. So they remember, oh, you know, back... 15 years ago, when this happened to you, I remember that this is what ultimately turned things around and really worked for you. None of the other people know that. Mm -hmm. So friends and family have that history with you and they understand you in that way. And so it's kind of a combination of all of those different things. Right. But you're right. The profound nature of peer-to-peer support is important. And I, I've also sat and listened to people say, oh, I'm not so sure about a support group because I feel like I'm going to go in and there's going to be a bunch of Debbie Downers and everybody's going to be kind of, you know, going on and on about their problems. And I just don't really, I don't think I'm going to feel uplifted. I don't know. That's what I want. And, you know, different support groups are different. So I always tell people, encourage people to try a different group, try a different forum, try face-to-face, try online, try telephone, try, there's many different options available to you. But that the other thing about support groups is that you can gather support and information that really resonates and makes you feel understood and cared for. You can also walk away recognizing that you're doing things in a way that feels really right and good for you. It's sometimes not until we have that perspective of, oh, I could be struggling so much worse, or I could be met with no, absolutely nobody available to me, that in contrast, you recognize, oh, there is something that I can take and hold on to here and feel blessed or feel fortunate about what I have to, to cope with this. Julie, for the person listening and is saying to themselves, this information is great and I think I know how to now address how I'm feeling and articulate what I'm feeling, but it's still grieving who still says I'm at this stage of the grieving process. And they want to know when they can say that they grieved past tense and got through it. What would be your response to that person? So in grief, there are stages of grieving. They're typically identified as denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and acceptance. And to your point, there is often this perception that you go through them in a, in a lovely, organized manner. Check, 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 right. check, I'm here and sign off. But if you've ever grieved something or someone, you know that 
you come to learn that's not the case and that you have all of those feelings in all different orders and that you can bounce back to denial, bounce back to anger, bounce to sadness, etc. You get with, within a day, within a week, within a period of time. And so it's not so neat and tidy that those are the feelings of grief and that we really move through them in all different ways. With regard to timeline and trajectory, I don't know how this is going to sound for people, but I believe you'll always grieve. You'll always grieve. That grief will live with you forever. It will live with you forever. I do think, and I have watched, so I don't just think, I have watched that grief changes and the intensity of the emotion changes over time. The depth of the sadness and the denial, that shock that you have when someone first leaves and you just can't, first is gone and, and you've lost them and you can't believe that they're really not there. I, can't, I, can't, I just can't believe this person isn't even here. This is, I can't, I'm numb, I'm shocked. That changes the depth of that sadness can change over time and how quickly those waves come. So grief comes in waves. And if you've ever gone through a mourning period, you, you will remember feeling the waves of grief and that in early on, those waves are deep and, and quick. The, the frequency, the intervals are very close together and the highs and the lows are very significant. But over time, the intervals stretch out a little further. You go a couple weeks without having an intense cry. The intensity of the sadness changes. So the intervals change, the depth of the feeling and the intensity of the feeling changes. But I think without question, you'll always grieve. That there will come a time down, year, decade, years down the road where something happens and oh, it's just boom, it's right there and you feel teary and you miss that person. Or you miss that time in your own life that's gone forever. A chapter has closed. Oh, and wasn't that a beautiful chapter? And I won't go back to that chapter ever. And I loved it. But it's gone. It's gone. I'm in a different place now. And, and that sadness could still come to you years down the road. So you don't know that there's ever a neat ending. I think it's always there. And in some ways, I think as we live longer with that grief, we come to understand it as where that loss is tucked in our heart and integrated into who we are and how we integrate that loss and come to understand, oh, these are the moments when I feel that person or these are the moments when I recall those memories of that time. This is where that lives within me. Almost more pressing are the question that I get asked a lot and I've done other information workshops and things on are what's, what's the tipping point? What's the catalyst when a feeling goes from being quote unquote normal to I need to seek professional help around this or maybe I need something more? You know, when does it become, when does sadness, what's the difference between sadness and depression? What's the difference between worry and anxiety? And unfortunately, our culture throws around the word depression and anxiety very flippantly as if they're just normal feeling. They're, they're actually a diagnosis. So depression and anxiety are a diagnosis and therefore they have a physiological nature to them as well. And I, you know, as a, just a starting point, I often tell people that with sadness and worry, with most feelings, you should be able to grab onto the feeling and care for yourself. And by caring for yourself, that might be alone or it might be seeking others for support or for distraction or for comfort. You're in some way have a uh, way of taking care of your feeling or allowing for that feeling. 
if you're unable to grab onto the feeling, if the sadness is persistent and getting in your way and constantly, constantly coming up and manifesting itself, if the worry is getting in the way of functioning, then we want to look at that a little bit more closely. Then the psychiatrist or doctor will also ask a number of questions that begin to identify, are there other ways that we're seeing those rhythms in your body off as well? And that's with eating or sleeping or different ways that that imbalance is manifesting itself. And so that's when you begin to look out, okay, is this just a normal feeling or am I need to maybe talk to a doctor about this? I think it's always worth talking to a doctor about because that's the person that's the expert and they'll listen and they'll watch you with their expert eyes to help you to understand. And if depression is in the picture and, and, it, and it's actually a very common diagnosis, it's more prevalent in our society than we realize. And unfortunately left untreated, it can have negative consequences, you know, for stress. And, and so I think if you're feeling that and you're wondering and you're questioning, 100% talk to your doctor about it because you don't need to feel that way. There's a way around that feeling. And there's so many resources available as well. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different ways of addressing and treating those things. Many, many different ways. Yeah. And I think with blood cancers, so we have blood cancers that are chronic in nature that seem to return or relapse. And that's the nature of the disease, the chronic. And then we have acute or aggressive types of blood cancers that the goal for treatment really is to cure the person. And a lot of times, you know, people are told that cure is what we're working for and they do get into remission and a lot of times go through all the stages into acceptance and then they do relapse. Do you find that people have to start again to go through the stages or that because they have an acceptance, it's a little bit different. Yeah, I think that it's definitely different, 100% different, because there will be grief again, that, you know, those feelings will in fact come back again, of course, that would make sense. But that individual is different. They have different experiences. They have different self-care tools. They have a different history. They are older. They have lived more life at that point. They've done, they are different that day than they were the first day they were diagnosed. So in some ways, it's a very different cancer diagnosis because there isn't the complete unknown of the first time. There's pieces of this that you know, you've been here. You know that you don't want to do it again. Oh, that's the heartbreak of having to do it again and the emotion that comes up, but it's not the same as the first time. There might be new pieces to this that weren't existent in the first time. So in some ways it's new, but that person also has the ability to tap back into that file of what they used the last time or how they coped and what got them through. There's that history that's there as well. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, when we were talking about acceptance and all emotions, that how important it is for us to give ourselves permission to feel, you know, permission to be sad, permission to be angry. You know, there's that, you know, when we, that we're back to when we were talking about the fight, the worry, there's often worry when people walk in and they begin to talk about how they're feeling, that they're coping poorly, that they are 
that they're not coping. <laughs> they're not coping. They're coping poor, poorly. Their feelings are just a mess and all over the place. And that anxiety about the feelings they're having. So they're having these big feelings and then they're feeling anxious about having them, right? So how do we strip that anxiety, that worry away and say that those feelings in fact are coping? There's a misconception, I think, that coping is feeling strong, capable, with it, on it, content, happy, whatever it is, that coping is like, I am here coping. Look at me, how well I am coping. (laughs) But that really what, but I think of coping as not static at all. I think of coping as surfing waves. That if you are able to surf the wave of emotion, that to me is coping. That you trust that I can go down deep in this well. I can allow and give myself permission to just cash this day in and just feel like I'm going to go down because I trust that it will change and that I will feel different tomorrow or I will feel different in a week or I feel different. That to me is coping. That ability to allow the ebb and the flow of feelings. That coping isn't being all okay all the time, fighting in the battle. No, that okay is surfing. That coping is surfing. And that, you know, you're like, you know what? Today, not a great day, people. I'm going to leave work. I'm going to go home and put on my pajamas. I'm going to sit in bed and I'm going to watch trashy TV. And that's what I need today. Our coping is everybody have a give me a wide berth because I am I'm on edge. Or that I'm emotional today. Today I just happen to be teary. I don't know why. And there's nothing wrong with that. How can we get out of this place of like you know I hear it all the time from my clients. Oh, I just wish I could do that better. I wish this didn't. If I if that if I wasn't so teary, I think that I'm just trying working so hard not to be so teary. What's, what's the problem with the being teary? Maybe are we only paying attention to when you're teary? And lo and behold, over here, 80% of the time, you're not teary. But the teary, the volume on teary is up so loud. It's all that you're seeing. You know, that really to be able to have all of those emotions, to find your way through, to trust your ability to care for yourself or to lean on other people and that be okay, that that is coping. Julie, thank you so much for speaking with us today and for sharing with us the importance of now, of each moment, and the beauty of emotions. A cancer diagnosis is never easy, but we here at the LLF, we create these resources and episodes like this one so we can better serve our listeners and better serve patients and caregivers. And thank you, Julie, for your work and the impact that you've left on so many, helping them through such a challenging time. Well, thank you. Thank you for those lovely words. It brings great meaning to me to do this work too. So I appreciate you asking me to do this and to be with you today. And I appreciate and I'm thankful for our Leukemia Lymphoma Society and all the services and support that you bring to many, many people as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.